0: podcast is part of the Sport Social Podcast Network. It's the biggest sport in the UK for female participation. 1.4 million women and girls taking part at some point during a season with 320,000 adults playing every fortnight. England are the reigning Commonwealth Games champions. Liverpool recently staged a successful World Cup. And the new Super League has 11 clubs with some of the world's best players vying to be crowned British champions. I'm
1: John. And I'm Michael. And like every sport in this country, netball came to a grinding halt in March 2020. The COVID-19 restrictions ended the Super League season after just a handful of games. So how did the clubs cope and what does the future look like? Let's find out in this latest episode of Great British Bosses, the podcast from Anything But Footy that focuses on the men and women running sport in this country.
2: Hi guys, uh, my name is Sam Bird and I'm the CEO at London Pulse Netball.
0: Well Sam, you say you're the CEO, you're also director of Netball and head coach. Are you either a control freak or is it the reality... That this is what it is like for professional netball clubs in the uk uh,
2: well that's a nice easy one to start with um uh, I've probably by default um i've became ceo uh, during the the pandemic um, in april last year and um, that was really as an interim position to start with um uh, enabled to to enable the club to really steer its way through the pandemic and to continue to grow and be successful, notwithstanding the restrictions um, of the pandemic. Um, and I, the idea at first was that I took over as interim CEO and carried on as director of netball and head coach for the BNSL team. Um, but uh, I found that um, Surprisingly, uh, I was quite effective in the role and also um, really passionate about the role. And uh, I was awarded the sort of uh, permanent position very quickly after taking that interim role. So I am in an unusual position of being CEO and director of NetWall and head coach. Um, But the secret to that is to surround myself with lots of very, very good people. And that's how I'm managing. We'll
1: talk about the new Super League season, which is just around the corner and what that's going to look and feel like very shortly. But a couple just before we move on to that, Sam, about the work that you did during the pandemic, because we were really impressed with the way that London Pulse kind of reacted to covid reacted to coronavirus and your initiative if you like inspire educate train which was a program not just for your netball players but for for netballers at all levels tell us a bit more about that and the work you were doing
2: yeah well we we decided we were either going to approach the getting through this pandemic in one of two ways we were either going to shut up shop and do nothing and try and come out the other side or we were going to be proactive during that time And we decided as a group that we wanted to be really proactive um, for a number of reasons. The the first is we're still a new club and we wanted to develop partnerships um, when people actually had time to talk to us because they were also um, not as active in their normal working lives. Um, But also we feel very strongly that as a flagship um, club in London, being the premier club in London, that we should be Um, In the community and supporting the community through the pandemic. So that's how the educate train inspire program came to light. And it's really taken off um, now where we we actually run uh, one session every week um, on various things from health mental well-being, um, strategy, racism, tackling all sorts of different issues within netball that we um, roll out to every member of our club and our members and our staff. And we just felt that um, as as a, a, a sport and being a premier female sport, that we should be reaching out to our own community during a difficult period of time. So that was a key driver for us and it was received really well.
1: And it was something that your roster, your players, really brought into and bought into as well.
2: Yeah, and that's, again, part of our philosophy that... The, the the girls at the top of the tree, so the, the the professional athletes that are getting paid can inspire the junior ones that want to be in their place um, in years to come. And so things like um, explaining what it takes to win and and um, what what it takes to be a professional athlete, those types of talks were really really useful for the younger athletes to to listen to, um, because it's really important that. People understand that every athlete that's made it, as far as they can see, has had setbacks, has had bumps in the road, have had difficult times, and that actually you've just got to persevere if you want to reach that goal. You've got to work really hard and manage those bumps in the road. So it was giving a realistic spin on what it takes to be a top athlete as well in our sport.
0: So Sam, you came to London Pulse in May 2019 after successful years at Seven Stars, how different is London netball compared with the rest of the country?
2: Um, it's, it's so unique. Um, the diversity in London is just uh, wonderful. And I was lucky enough to work in my other profession in London for a long time. And um, I think the thing that makes London special is that um, there is genuine diversity. There's genuine engagement with communities from... Uh, low socioeconomic families to very wealthy families from different cultures, different religions, um, and to give you an example, within our own club, there are over 30 languages spoken. And for, for us, and for me in particular, that just makes us a very special club and a very special um, community. So it, it, what that does is it gives a platform to expand our reach. And it also gives us a platform to celebrate those sort of differences and diversity and different cultures within our own network. And that just makes it a really fun place. (laughs) Um, You know, on our netball court, it's very normal to hear players speaking in different languages to each other that, you know, where the English is not their first language um, and it's perfectly normal. And we're trying to continue to promote that so that um, we, we really have a global impact in terms of encouraging people engaging with our sport.
0: There's also a lot of noise in London, particularly in the media, and and football, as we know, tends to dominate. That's why we call this podcast Anything But Footy. How much of a challenge is it to get your voice heard?
2: It it is a challenge, um, albeit i found that... um, When we finally get through to people in terms of our message and what we can offer, they are very open to listening to what we can offer them as well as them offering us. And that's why we've been able to create some really good partnerships in a very short space of time. You know, we are unique. We've got the City of London um, as part of our catchment and then we've got the the complete other end of the spectrum. And uh, it's really important that we engage with everybody from you know commercial firms in the city of london and the golden mile if you like and then all the way down to community projects that are with communities that are based close to the copper box where we play and train so um it's a real real mix um but it's sort of what is the magic of our club
1: it's amazing to think that with the copper box there, that's obviously a legacy venue from the Olympics in London 2012, that London is the, the youngest netball franchise, if you like, in the Vitality Netball Super League. So you are about to you know, play what we hope will be a, a full season. It will be different, though, to what people have experienced before. What can you tell us about how the new Super League season will unfold?
2: Yeah, well, it's um, obviously um, after the league was cancelled last year, it was imperative that we ran a a league this year. And and credit to the VNSL and England netball and all the clubs that are involved that we we do have a league that's about to start. Um, It will be different in that it's split into two venues and the first half of the season will take place in Wakefield and every team will travel to play their matches in Wakefield. Um, You still sort of allocated a home and away fixture, but every team will travel there. And then um, from our point of view, the good news is the second half of the season, the neutral venue is the Copper Box. Um, So for us, it's wonderful that the second half of the season is at our uh, venue where we live and train um, and spend all of our time. And I think the hope is, depending on the public health situation, that um, the Copper Box is a a good venue to allow potentially um, some socially distanced fans in if the public health situation allows that. So um, it's a split season um, with a neutral venue um, for, for each half.
1: So the Wakefield end, that is going to be behind closed doors. So in terms of the logistics, how is that going to work in terms of creating bubbles? Are you going to be one big bubble together or will different teams be individual bubbles and travel back and forward?
2: Yeah, um because we still don't have the resource to um put players in a in a genuine bubble um for that amount of time because the league it still will run from February through to the finals in June, the end of June. Um there's quite a, a, a heavy testing regime now uh, where teams are tested twice a week um, and the second test is the day before they play, but we will all travel up to the, the venue, um, play the game, and then um a lot of the weekends are double headers, so that there might be matches Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and for example, you might have a team that you play Saturday and then you might play Monday again. So in those circumstances you would stay up um as a team um but otherwise it's up and down on on the coach masks on socially distanced very glamorous
0: you mentioned it was imperative the season went ahead this year after you won your opening three games last season It all ground to a halt did it halt the momentum if you like
2: well, it didn't for us a club, for a club as a club personally, but I think it, there's no getting away from the fact that people need to see a sport in order to get behind it. And um, for me, my view is that it's absolutely critical that that people can see our sport and. A good thing about um, this particular deal uh, is that Sky Sports are covering every game. I think it's the first time that we will have ever had either linear or YouTube coverage of every match that's in the Super League. And that is critical um, so that we develop our fan base. We, young girls in particular, see female role models playing netball. As you mentioned earlier, some of the athletes we have playing in the Super League are genuinely world class. And there's loads and loads of good reasons for people to be watching netball. And I think without that visibility, it would be very difficult for clubs then to have the momentum to make money um, in terms of bringing fans back when they can, because you just don't have a fan base and you need fans coming in to support your team not only for the the atmosphere and all the good reasons about engaging with sport but quite frankly you need it to to survive so um, the visibility this year is absolutely crucial
0: we know that women's sport has been more affected than men's sport since COVID-19 came our way are you surprised by that or sadly disappointed by it
2: um I'm not surprised um it's the sad reality of there still being quite a lot of inequality in sports. Um, I do think women um also need to really decide to support other female sports, though. I think there's a responsibility for women to try and champion their own sports, and we're not great at that, and we need to get better at that. But I think um You know, across sport, generally, you know, female sport, the athletes are paid less, the staff are paid less. Um, It's um, a a less expensive product. Um, Our salary cap's low. All of those things all contribute to making our sport more vulnerable um, when something hits and um, it's something that needs to change.
1: Do you have the answers as to what can be done to change it, Sam?
2: Um, Yeah, well, I don't have all the answers, but I think um, one of the key things and one of the things I'm trying to do in in my role as CEO is actually show Um, people the value of our sports. Um, We we undervalue our own sport. So for example, we have a very low salary cap to pay our players, which means really that players can't still be fully professional. So most of them need a second job to back up what they do. So for me, the salary cap should be raised so that we can pay the, the key players and key staff a genuine salary so that they can be genuinely professional athletes. And whilst that's scary and whilst that um, means clubs have got to find extra money, I think it has to be the way forwards. And I've certainly found when I've been talking to partners um, about um, working with us, it, it's almost been quite embarrassing saying what salary cap is. So if I say, oh, it's £70,000, they'll say, what, per player? or and, and when I'm saying, no, that's across nine players because you have one marquee that you can pay anything, That, that it automatically that puts you on the back foot because they're like, well, if you're not valuing your own sport, if that's how you're valuing your international athletes, why are we going to then give you a hundred thousand pounds if you value your own sport and your own club in that way so I think the, the the rhetoric has to change and we have to value ourselves first and trust our product and trust our game in order to be able to sell it and, and raise the value of it
1: and you know what your fan base is you know who your supporters are you know who's on your mailing list you know who's visiting your website is that is that feasible moving forward what you're saying
2: Well, I think it's a bit chicken or egg, to be honest. I think you've got to set the bar and then you've got to meet it. And there is no doubt that we need to expand our reach. It's a crucial driver for us as a club. Um, But it's a bit like revising for an exam, isn't it? (laughs) Unless you've got the deadline there or you've got the the target there to to drive and aim for, then it never happens. And so I'm very much like you've got to put that there. You've got to make that the standard and then you've got to meet it. Um, And I think that netball can. I think netball can meet it. I think there's a a, a good desire for people to watch elite female athletes. And I think we should trust our game, that it is exciting and is watchable and people want to be part of it.
0: And let's hope the opportunity, as you mentioned, the fact that it's all on Sky Sports... Over the coming weeks and months, you grab that opportunity and, and, we, and we push forward. Uh, we're talking to Sam Bird, CEO, Director of Netball, Head Coach, as we mentioned, of London Pulse. And I want to talk to you, Sam, about how you got into that position with your career. And also you mentioned, obviously, that the need still for second jobs and what you did. But one more question on the thing that's dominated the last 12 months or so, and that on coronavirus. In September 2020, you said... I'm in a privileged position and it's a rare thing to be able to work every day doing what I love. Is that still the case or is it just a little bit tiring after a while being locked in the house?
2: Do you know what? It's still the case. I love it. Um, and um, what, what I really love is that, you know, I've, I've been around the game a long time in lots of different roles. And I I've, for the last few years have felt really Not frustrated, but I've wanted to be part of that decision making process and to have the ability to drive the game forward as I I know I can. And so now I can. And I've got great support from the owners of the club and they've enabled me also to... Um, bring in really good staff and um, I, th- I think the secret of success is to wrap to surround myself by other experts that that know what they're doing so I've been able to recruit really strong marketing and partnership and um, staff I've got a community lead I've got PR I've got um, a performance lead as well I've got a great multidisciplinary team on the performance side and we are We've, made, we've decided to behave in a professional way, even though we're not a professional club yet. So we're deciding to act and be as professional as we can. And because of that, it's just really exciting. You know, every day that there's something's going on. Somebody's got a new deal. Somebody's got a new idea. Um, and it really is an exciting place to, to be working.
0: As well as sports fans, we have quite a lot of leadership people who listen to the podcast what experience did you have in your work life that has has put you in a position where you can do those things and you know how to be this successful ceo
2: um good question um i think uh, my background is a lawyer uh in-house lawyer with the metropolitan police service for over 20 years and i was very lucky to be Um, involved in sort of global projects where I was traveling around the world in the 90s, um, traveling to countries that probably lots of people hadn't visited at the time. So like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, China, Hong Kong, Romania. And I think just being part of that sort of um, global team, And learning how to deal with different people and being in very weird situations and being very uncomfortable um, in negotiating with um, lawyers that didn't speak the same language um, and quite long negotiations abroad just really gave me the confidence to just trust in people generally. Like most people want to work together and want to collaborate and want to get to Whatever you're discussing, they want success at the end of it. And I found that um, really just trusting the people you're working with and, and against and understanding what they need out of something and understanding what the end result should be has just helped me really learn to listen and understand about how to collaborate in order to improve whatever it is you're trying to improve.
1: I'm just wondering whether you trust us and whether you think we're working with you or against you. Um, your netball credentials, of course, are you know, pretty strong as well. You were an international, England international player, but you had to retire with a knee injury at the age of 24. What does a 24-year-old netball player do next when they have to retire with a knee injury? Or was the fact that the legal career was running alongside meant that wasn't such a huge impact for you?
2: Yeah, um, it was a huge impact. Um, I'd, I'd been in England, in the England squad since I was 14, 15, and it was very difficult. I had seven knee operations, and it was very difficult to accept that I couldn't play. And um, I got very angry, very frustrated, went through a whole ro- range of emotions. Um, but the saving grace with that really was that um, I had already qualified as a lawyer. And I think the drive and the passion you learn to become a, a, when you're an England player. Um, you know, I, I was the smallest player in the squad. I was five foot three, had no right really to be playing for England. Um, you know, but it was just sort of determination and drive that that enabled me to do that. And that sort of then just I just transferred that into my legal career. Um, and then I just really found that I missed netball. So all the the, the things you think you want out of it at the time when you're playing for England are, you know, to represent your country. All of those things are amazing, but ultimately I just missed my friends and I missed the social element of being in and around a team. And so I just thought, well, I, I need to be back involved in this game. So I, I got involved in coaching because um, for me, it's just really awful not being involved with a sport I love. So uh, coaching was then the next thing I became very passionate about.
1: Did you, though, at that point think you could make a career or a job for life as a a netball coach at the age of 24? Or did you think it would just have to be a, a passion that you do alongside something that essentially pays the mortgage?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to give some perspective on that, my first England match, I think I was given a free pair of socks (laughs) <laughs> um, and that was it, you know, and I can remember thinking, wow, I've been given a free pair of socks, you know, we we were loaned the kit, you know, we were never given kit to keep. And, um, you know, so even in this sort of one generation, the, the massive change that I've seen um, from what players have now to what we had then, It is huge and it's brilliant. And that's why I'm passionate about driving it on further because I know it can and will change. But no, when I was playing, everybody had a second career. There there was no, and all sorts as well. Um, But there was no way you could play netball for England and, and live off that.
0: Is it a cliche, Sam, to say that girls still struggle with sport during their teenage years? Or have we got better at it? in the last 10 years by showing there is opportunity out there, or is there still more work to be done?
2: Um, There's more work to be done, but I think, um, for example, the Educate, Train, Inspire programme that we have, and I know other clubs are sort of replicating that now um, in in different ways, but I I think the athletes we have in our club are, are outstanding. I mean, it's the other part of being in London you know the raw talent wandering around wasting to be picked up in London um to play netball is just ridiculous and and it's up to us to to get them involved in that but I still think that um teenagers just generally they all seem to have a lot more to worry about nowadays um you know it's just um and even from the point of you know, when we went on tour with England, you know, there were no mobile phones, there were, you, you know, you just played and then you went and had fun, you know, and even now I, I want our elite athletes, even our junior athletes through our pathway to enjoy it and have fun. Cause the ones that do come into the pathway, then take it very, very seriously at a very early age. And that's something we have to be careful of as well. Um, But I think again, one of the things we're looking at doing is um, trying to make that lower level, that younger age group more visible as well, because my daughter, for example, um, 13, she'd rather listen to an 18 year old than a 25 year old. So I think um, having that younger sort of end of the elite athletes then far more identifiable to a younger teenager than maybe an adult elite athlete because it just looks too far away whereas if they can connect at a more sort of realistic level where there's maybe only four or five years difference I think they see that they can achieve that and be that much more so we're looking for that visibility at that age as well.
0: Before Michael mentions he was there watching it how crucial was England winning the gold medal at the Commonwealth Games in Gold Coast in 2018.
2: I was there, I saw it. Well, it was um, absolutely brilliant um, on every level, Um, you know, just every, every level um, for female sport, for England to beat the Aussies in Australia. um, Doesn't matter what sport that is. Everyone wants that to happen. Um, it was brilliant for the players involved and the coaching staff involved and Tracy Neville obviously was the head coach then but just um, in terms of the momentum and how that carried through to the World Cup that was held here the following year w- was brilliant and I think that just gives you a window of what is possible in netball and that that it wasn't just that we'd won the gold medal it was the nature of how we won it you know it's the last second it was really exciting um you know lots of people that would not normally take an interest in netball found that an interesting story and those are the sorts of stories we've got to recreate with the super league and other events like that that create that level of passion and excitement that our game offers
1: you're not, as we know, an Olympic sport, and that's probably not something that's on the agenda in the near to midterm future. You are a Commonwealth Games sport, as we said. How important will Birmingham in 2022 be? And then how concerning is it for you that we still don't have a host for 2026 and potentially because of the pandemic we've been in the commonwealth games might never be seen the way we have known it all of our lives ever again after birmingham
2: yeah i think there's some massive sort of um, policy decisions to be considered and how how we're going to keep that visible as well if there's still restrictions on fans or global travel or um, lots of the Commonwealth countries may not be able to afford to send teams that there's a huge number of challenges in in relation to the Commonwealth Games Um, for us it is as you say a flagship event Um, you know it's a key part of our calendar that and the World Cup they are the two biggest things you can achieve in netball so for us it is brilliant for it to potentially be in Birmingham and, but I think, again, I think we've got to start being more creative about how we interact with the fan base um, digitally as well, um, because we've got to accept that there may still be restrictions. And as you say, there may be restrictions for a long period of time yet. And so we've got to get better at reaching out to a fan base and helping them feel engaged, even if they're not actually at the event.
1: Previous guests on this podcast, uh, Ian Reid, who's the the chief exec of Birmingham 2022. Uh, We spoke to him. We spoke to David Grevenberg, the CEO of the Commonwealth Games Federation. And we were struck by something David said to us about the future of the Commonwealth Games. And he said that, you know, nothing is off the table and Birmingham will experiment with this. They will have some events in India. In a general viewpoint, do you see that that might be the way that these sort of multi-sport large events might have to go?
2: It may well be. Um, I mean, I know there's even talk of um, some of the events for the Birmingham not actually taking place in Birmingham. Some will be in London, some will be around the country, depending on um, that specific event. And I, I guess uh, there's two key things. The, the, the first thing is, an af- as an athlete, you want to be with all the other athletes and you want that sort of camaraderie. And again, I come back to... One of the key things that you don't necessarily realise whilst you're competing but one of the pervasive things is the friendships you make and the connections you make and and that's always been with everybody at the same venue or the same country um, involved in that event and I think that shift will be a challenge um, because I think you lose that sort of camaraderie and that connectivity if you're having to hold different events in different places But every athlete I'm convinced would still say they'd rather still take place in a a part in a competition with those adjustments and those restrictions because they still ultimately want to compete for medals and things that they've been training for. So I I think um, the key thing on that is to communicate what that might look like as early as possible so people have clarity. I think one of the things that's changed through the pandemic already for us is like the total chaos that there was in March compared to everybody being a bit more uh, understanding and prepared to be flexible about changes and um, you know, short-term changes and rescheduling, people are much more understanding about that now than they were um, back in March. So I, I think that needs to be part of the, the dialogue for major championships like um, the Commonwealth Games.
0: So let's refocus then on the new Super League season, London Pulse. What's the aim for the season? What yeah? You know, what are you What are you on that first day as head coach going to be saying to the girls? Um,
2: what am I going to be saying? I'm going to be saying um, you've done everything you can in terms of training in the right way you've coped with um, being flexible um, through the pandemic I think we're the only team that has trained consistently through the pandemic um, either through home training or now we're at the copper box every day training um, so I think for them just to believe that they can succeed because the hard work that's gone into it um, inevitably means that good performances will follow. So I, I really don't want them to be too nervous about it. I want us to go out and enjoy those matches and enjoy competing because it is actually a privilege to be able to compete again. And I know we've got a good squad. I know we've got a squad that can on its day beat any other team in the league.
1: And how proud will you be of all the work that you've done as a club? Not just with the, you know, your your first team, if you like, but at every level. How proud have you been well, how proud will you be when it all gets going in Wakefield?
2: Oh, It's, it's going to be a, a, great, a great day because um, we, we have, as you know, kept all of our pathway running as well. And we even added to our pathway, we introduced a multi-sport um, um, t- squad as well, um, aged 12 and 13. So we've expanded our pathway through this pandemic. And every member of that pathway and every member of staff is contributing to the success of the club and um, the, the VNSL team is the showcase of that but it's only one part of that so um, it, it will just be great to know we've got the support of everybody in our club and all our fans and members um, when we go out um, on court on the 13th.
0: Well we wish you all the best Sam Bird CEO of London Pulse, thank you very much for talking to great British bosses.
2: Thank you both for your time, it's a pleasure.